I'm not here to poke holes in suspended disbelief. Anyway, they see some weird shit. They decide to make a baby. Thou Merkin merchant. Who gives a fuck? Oh my god, we're just gonna start calling you Damien Yeltsin's billboards. Well, you know, uh, I really like it here. Uh, it's kind of nice, and uh, it's not as cold as back home, and the soil is a lot better. So yeah, sure, I think we're gonna settle. If I'm a peasant boy who grabs a sword out of a stone, yeah, I'm able to open people up. You will, yeah. Anytime I hit them with it, right? Yeah. So my cleave landing will make me a cavalier. Good day, sir. If Siskel thought it was empty-headed plebeian trash, he was probably <laughs> really good at groove on it. <laughs> because cannibalism and murder. Pull back just a little bit and build walls to keep out the redheads. Authorial intent doesn't exist. Some people stand up and wipe their butts. Some people stay seated and wipe their butts. Like, it just... teacher here in Northern California. And uh, just yesterday, uh, my wife and I were awakened at one o'clock in the morning uh, by a sound no parent ever wants to hear. And that was the sound of our son vomiting violently from the other end of the house. Um, And um, he's fine now. We're, we're, you know, uh, 36 hours or so uh, removed from it and he's okay now, but um, something we had for dinner uh, last night uh, did, did not agree with him like at all. Um, And so we were awakened at at one o'clock in the morning by that. Um, And then it took until, I don't know, two 30 or three uh, to fall asleep but the the really complicating factor uh, for me in all of this, uh, aside from just being worried about my kid, uh, was, um, of course, I'm a teacher, which means in order for me to take a sick day, um, I have to be able to uh, call in to get a sub, and then I have to provide plans uh, for what the substitute is going to be having my kids do while I'm out. Um, and it was, um, both a bit of a scramble and at the end, um, I felt pretty confident in, in my, uh, in my role, in my, in my profession, because I was actually able to knock out a, I don't need to do any prep. Nobody needs to run any copies for me in my absence lesson plan in about 45 minutes of, of consistent work from home. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I came away from it feeling, feeling pretty good, uh, about my, my position, I suppose. 
uh, I've 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 made it. I am in <laughs> fact no kidding a a full time public school teacher. uh because you know i could i could get that done like okay you know the shit hit the fan and uh the blades kept spinning so there we go um so yeah uh like i said uh he's fine now um he is however uh still using uh his tummy hurting as an excuse for literally everything under the sun um like anything he didn't want to do today he was telling us well my tummy hurts like okay no that's that's not a reason why you can't pick up your toys like no you it clearly it doesn't it doesn't hurt that bad because you're playing with your hot wheels so no sorry <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so that's that's my uh tale of self-discovery for the week uh how about you well, I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin and U.S. history teacher at the high school level level up here in Northern California. Uh, so Hold the you, lever, Kronk. you will. <laughs> uh, so you you now have a vomit wing and a non-vomit wing at your house. I think either I've stymied him or or he lost his audio. Uh, uh, I lost okay. I lost audio there for a second. Oh, so okay. say that again. You have Sorry? either a vomit wing and mm-hmm. a non-vomit wing at your house. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah. Has, is there any particular place in your house where your son uh, tends to hurt himself to the point of blood? I'm thinking back no. patio, maybe. Um, um, no. I'm just thinking you've got no, yellow not, bile. Not at home. Uh, look out for black bile. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Just, you know, humor me here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Actually, yeah. I, I do want to send you Lamb. now um, pictures from, uh, well done. Uh, I want to send you now uh, posters of Conan the Barbarian fighting against various creatures and see, because do we have a controlled case here where now that he has vomited, <laughs> uh, is this, is this for, for listeners it's, who are just, just jumping poster. in. Um, I, when I was uh, your son's age, I, I was not feeling well. My dad brought home a bunch of Conan, the barbarian posters to like show me. And when he showed me one and he like teased it up and all this is like, this is going to be really scary. You think you can handle it? I'm like, Oh yeah, it's going to be great. But the problem was my stomach coincided with that moment. And so he shows mm-hmm. me Conan fighting the ape beast. Right. And I just vomited everywhere all over the throw up. <laughs> blue chunks. Yeah. Yeah. And that's... so the the standing story has always been that that scared me so much that I puked. And it's like, no, no, I really liked the picture. But then all of breakfast came out, you know, so. <laughs> but, but 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 my intestines were just not happy that day. Right. You know, but uh, yeah. so I'm going to yeah. maybe we can start with like Princess Bride and work his way up. I don't know. Um, okay. Well, I, I say just, you know, uh, go for, go for the shock treatment and, and start yeah. with the Conan poster. And see I like what it. Happens, you know? I like it. Uh, for myself, yeah. uh, I actually, you know how depressing it's been being a U.S. history teacher for me this year, because all the content I write is U.S. history, which is categorically depressing. Mm-hmm. Um, I finally found a lesson that made me happy <laughs> and it cheered me up and it yeah. was, yeah, I, I did a lesson yeah. on Japanese internment. Um, that's not the part that cheered me up. Uh, <laughs> wait, I, okay. I, I'm, I'm not cheered you, up by okay. Japanese incarceration during world war two. I am cheered up by Gordon here. You had me in the first half. Not going to yeah, lie. Mitsuya okay. Endo, uh, Mr. Yasui and, uh, yeah. Fred Korematsu, the four yeah. people who stood up against it and brought cases to court 
specifically Yasui, who like turned himself in, made sure he waited an hour past curfew. And he says, I've been walking around past curfew for people who are of my descent. Uh, and they're like, well, now you have to go to jail. He's like, I understand. And I'll be appealing this. And then they like sentenced him. And he's like, you should send me to an outside prison. And they're like, well, we're going to send you to internment. You don't get to do that. Like, it was just so cool to see the polite badassery. Oh, wow. Of it. And so that oh, yeah. prompted me, of course, to pick up a graphic novel about it, uh, which my kids are going to have to read this summer. So um, it was, it's really cool. It's really cool. Uh, we hereby refuse. Now, I don't normally make recommendations this early in the show, but it's really good. But Mitsuya Endo okay. is a Sacramento native. And uh, she basically proved that incarceration was not okay, especially since she was proven not yeah. to be uh, disloyal. And then they're like, "Yeah, but we're still going to incarcerate you." And she's like, "Oh uh, yeah, because she was, because yeah. she was Methodist. She was a Methodist. Couldn't speak and Japanese. Like twenty years old. Yeah, worked could, at yeah, the DMV. Had, had no. Yeah, yeah, she was fun. So it cheered me up that that story of polite." Uh, resistance and uh, refusal to accept such oppression. Yep. Um, I really liked it. So that's that's what's up Very with me. Cool. Um, I don't All know right. if anybody heard, but we heard a third laughter in there. Um, and that's because yes. tonight we have a guest uh, to try to explain stuff to me that I just can't seem to stay awake to understand. Um, so ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, boys and girls, children, all ages, everything in between and on either side, uh, please welcome Mr. Beowulf Rockland, the host of Face Palm America. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for. I, I couldn't help but, but, but laugh in the background, and I just, you know, I was, uh, you know, things, things make me chuckle, and uh, I, I, they need to come out sometimes. And, oh, absolutely. So. Well, as 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 Ed's son has proven. Uh, so. <laughs> Well, I, I love the story of that poster. You know, I mean, yeah. like, I, I'm sure you're not the only one that uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger has made, you know, vomit over the course of the years. Right. Well, it was the uh, what's the guy's name? Boris yeah. Yeah. That's probably. Oh, Boris and Aleo. There you go. Him. That guy. It was his art yeah. uh, of the Conan stuff. But yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, well, I've I've had a similar response to Boris Vallejo's art a number of times. I'm I'm <laughs> I'm just not a fan. That's fair. Just, yeah. I don't that know. It, entirely fair. Yeah. I would say it's it's literally a matter of taste, but we know what I tasted that day. So, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, what do you think of this orange kid? juice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you had rice, did you? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It it just makes me very grateful that both of my kids are are in their twenties now, and um, I you know I, I'm I'm roughly around the same age as you guys. I started very early and um, I'm just, you know, I'm glad we're past the, the barfing stage. And, you know, that's, you know, I, I remember that era. Well, mm -hmm. I'm, I, I feel mm -hmm. for you, Ed, and it's not fun, but it, it is at the same time, like very reassuring to know that you can get things done in the background. Like, you know, you know, that like thrown into a situation you can make things function, and that's a certain marker of adulthood and professionality. And I found at a certain point, like working in radio and, and and podcasting, which is my background, that I could be thrown into a call, and all of a sudden, I could be talking about stuff and saying stuff and thinking to myself at the back of my head, wow, hey, I'm talking about things, and people are kind of nodding their heads and... <laughs> 
believing what I'm saying, and that's pretty cool. And this seems reasonably decent and professional, and wow, hey, I'm just saying stuff. Awesome. That's great. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's when I sort of oh, realized. Man, that's I like me in the classroom thing. at least three days a week. Yeah, there you go. I mean, you guys are dealing with this, with this all the time. Sure. But for sure. me, it was a big deal. Wow. I mean, yeah. Nice. I can say things on calls. <laughs> I can I can talk to people. I can conduct interviews. Hey, we're have you speaking. Ever, we're communicating and we're human beings. Have you ever prepared one direction and then they offer you a thing going completely? You're like, you're like, hey, I'm here to talk about, uh, you know, ice cream cones and why we don't see sugar ice cream cones as much. And they're like, so about Turkey and the Kurds. You know, you... <laughs> Sometimes I mean, like not not that dramatically but sure. sometimes yeah i mean it's you just get to talking and you find a different direction and as long as there's something within your ken that mm -hmm. you can grasp onto you okay. just kind of flow in that direction and it's nice. it, it's fun and, and i think that's a dangerous thing especially for for white guys like us because we just start talking and we start explaining things and we have to mm -hmm. be a little careful and check ourselves and say how long have I been talking about this? Oh, okay. I think I should stop now. Other people yeah. might want to talk too. Yeah. Good. Okay. And then shut the jaw in there. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> that is a good reason for people to have podcasts, and it's a good reason exactly. uh, to keep keep track of uh, you know your your own talk time on on others. So, mm -hmm. but exactly. when you're a guest, as you are tonight, you are the star of the show. So, Geek History of Time is very pleased to have you come on and talk to us about a genre of film that I have heretofore not been able to hang with except for the Maltese Falcon. Hmm. I'm talking film okay. noir. Right. Yeah. So right. uh, tell yes. us, please. That, uh, yes. First off, like you you have semi-credentials on, on this in that you've been on well. several cruises with old people. <laughs> so. I, I, I suppose you, you could sort of say that in a way. So... Um, I went to UC Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. I, I have a piece of paper that actually is, has, you know, burned up in a fire, uh, since that says I have a degree in, in film and video. Mm -hmm. And that basically means that I, I wrote a bunch of essays about movies, uh, in college. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and at one point I did take a class in film noir and over the course of the years, uh, you know, I've interviewed uh, a few Interesting folks, including people at Turner Classic Movies, Ben Mankiewicz. Actually, these are of uh, Noir. Um, uh, that one of their hosts over there it was uh, fun uh, talking to him. Uh, talked to uh, Jane Powell and and went at one point on the Turner Classic Movie Cruise. I Matt, that. Debbie Reynolds. Yes, I uh, interviewed her. Um, Mickey Rooney. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, no, it was uh, so, yeah, I, I'm into classic films, sure. but I will say also that having gone on the classic movie cruise, and this was about 10 years ago now, when, and, and Alex, I, I, I kid you not, Alex Trebek was there. He was okay. conducting classic movie trivia night and he's a classic, he was a classic movie fan. Sure. And you, you realize what your shortcomings are when you get into the level of detail of trivia that some of these folks know. Oh, you think bad. among your set of friends, you know about classic movies, you know who the actors and the directors are and when such and such a film was made. I, I knew nothing. 
compared okay. to these people. Compared to them. These yeah. are top level folks. So wow. Yeah, I do have a little bit of a background. Sure. I remember listening to your interview with Debbie Reynolds. Um, and I rather enjoyed it. It was just it was very sweet and it was very respectful of of her time and the time that she's been on this earth and the time she had on the cruise. And uh I still liked that you like you respected her enough to have done your homework, so to so to speak. Like you, you had a fair amount of working knowledge with the things that she said. Like she would say things, and you would not be out of your depth. It was really, it was, it was cool. It was fun to hear. So cool. And and, and yeah. I do have to say that that my wife Lisa, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, she uh, assisted me in, in conducting that interview, and I thought it brought right. a, a dimension uh, to it, um, especially when she discussed her her uh, motherhood and raising uh, Carrie Fisher that right. that i i probably could not have, have have brought to it and i think that brought out things you know in her experience where she talked about you know her how how difficult it was raising kids how difficult it was being a kid coming to hollywood right. from uh from texas having you know her her dad sleep out on park benches like when they were really you know struggling you know before uh before she had made it uh, um that there were some real, real amazing moments uh, there during during our conversation, and I would feel very privileged to have had it. That's pretty neat. Yeah. So, yeah. but I don't think Debbie Reynolds was in much film noir. So she was not. No, 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 no. 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 When we're talking about film noir, we're talking about Robert Mitchum and Humphrey Bogart and Dana Andrews and Burt Lancaster and Elizabeth Scott and Lauren Bacall and and. Yeah, we're we're talking about like the from mostly, and you know there there patches here and there about different things, but the late forties through to the through to the late nineteen fifties. This is primarily, at least when we're not talking about neo noir, a post war genre, mm. and it and it comes about. Um, I mean, I really only retrospectively, you know, once you reach the nineteen seventies, is it referred to as film noir. But okay. these are basically so. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, but uh, when when we're talking about when we're talking about the the time period of of the genre, would you say that the that I mean, film noir is uh, largely kind of built around the the uh, works of Chandler and and those guys, right? Um. And and now, if I'm remembering right, Chandler and those guys were writing like in the early 40s or were they were they later than I'm thinking? So um, if you're talking about like like Chandler's first novel, it was actually in 1939. He wrote that's when he wrote The Big Sleep. OK. And and okay. during the 1930s, he, he's such an interesting guy in and of himself because he had been um, uh, a, an oil company executive in the 1920s who lost his job as a combination of a result of of one is alcoholism and two the the bad economy and he tried his hand like at the age of uh you know around 40 at writing short crime stories and in in uh, in pulp magazines and actually became incredibly successful at it uh DeShiel Hammett uh was was really his prime was writing in the 1920s and that's and I, if I'm remembering correctly, I think okay. it was about 1925 or 1926 that that uh, the Maltese Falcon uh, with uh, Sam Spade came out. So that's the sort of range of time. And a lot of these movies, you know, I mean, there's an impetus and there's a strong connection between those hard boiled detectives 
and that era. And certainly there are a lot of hard-boiled detective adaptations that are film noir, like The Maltese Falcon, like The Big Sleep, like Murder, My Sweet. Um, the Big and, Sleep, wasn't that mm-hmm. the, the one from 1981 with uh, Jeff Goldblum? Or, no, it was 83, and Glenn Close and... Uh... What, I John think they Turner. did a re. I think they did a remake okay. of it. Tom Berenger was in it, yeah. right? Yeah, but uh, but but yeah. uh, Bogart's yeah, yeah. version that of was, the Big yeah. Sleep was uh, was what I think 1946. I'm thinking of the Big Chill. Never mind. The Big Chill. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> you see, completely over my head. <laughs> the multi. Is so, isn't that the one where all the kids are in detention together yeah. in Shermer, Illinois? Is that no? Right, right, right. Twelve Angry Men. That's the one with the three women, uh, and... right? It's, uh... <laughs> Yeah, and now and now you understand why sometimes I hate my podcast partner as much as I do. <laughs> uh, oh no, no, it just but, it, it, uh, it, it, it just goes over my head. But 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 that was an that, that got in a way the the genre going. But but I think it more fully okay. came into its own like after World War II. But there were, I mean, there there are a lot of commonalities, okay. and I and I think there's like that okay. that um, the the hard boiled detective genre is a big. Um, you know, inspiration, and there's a lot of overlap uh, with with film noir, and in, in a way, it's sort of the, okay. the literary side of it, and that you know extends also to to a certain okay. extent to Mickey Spillane, who I don't like so much because he's just like more raw violence than I care for. But Kiss okay. Me Deadly, uh, 1955, okay. is certainly conf- considered uh, a classic film noir, one of the few that kind of gets into okay. uh, the the nuclear issues of the day. So I was, I was going to ask, like, because you're you're okay. saying that it's it's adapting in many ways the the uh, hard boiled detective stuff, which comes around twenties and forward, um, when you've got prohibition, when you've got uh, the Roaring Twenties into a, a a terrible depression, a, a Great Depression even, um, and and the best, then the very best, the best of all depression. Yes, I mean really. Um, yes, it was it was the biggest, the biggest, most amazing depression. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, when, when I was a kid, uh, there was, uh, so I lived in a community that was next to a retirement community that most people had done very well for themselves their whole lives is Walnut Creek area, right? Um, Rossmore is where all these oldsters live. And, uh, the assignment that the history teachers used to assign was go and interview someone who lived through the great depression. No, you can learn about how bad it was for people and stuff. Well, the problem was everybody who like went to Rossmore, no, they all did fine. They were part of that two thirds <laughs> that never lost their jobs. So it was that that yeah. assignment was yeah. pretty much bricked uh, after a yeah. few years. Uh, so I never had to do it. But uh, you had to take the part a few few yeah. miles yeah. further yeah. west. Head yeah. down where the line turns orange, and maybe you can yes. talk to some people. But, there you go. But okay, so uh, you've got this Great Depression. Not to be confused with, of course, the Great Panic, which of all the panics. Um, but uh, you have this hard-boiled detective, which is extra legal. Um, you know, they 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 have some licensure and things like that. Um, but they they exist in a in a space that is not what the cops do, but they're doing things yeah. that the cops do. And it's kind of it. You get the feel there's no good, there's no bad, there's just all this gray. And then yeah. they get to the movies, but the movies start coming out after the war. And it just feels to me like there's, in, in in the very few movies that I've seen, I stayed awake through, um, the uh, the 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 paranoia aspect of post World War II America 
of like, oh shit, they also have the bomb. Uh, all yeah. that kind of stuff seems to have, you know, like, so you, it's really interesting that it's bookending the war, but mm -hmm. it doesn't exist during the war. Yeah. And, and it starts to develop and there are pieces here and there. I mean, um, the Maltese Falcon, for example, that's 1940, which is, you know, before the war, um, sure. uh, double indemnity, if I'm remembering correctly with Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck, that's, uh, I think that's 1944. And I've heard that referred to as a film gray, you know, a, a, instead of film, black film, gray film, which is like sort okay. of leading towards the development of this genre, but definitely in a, a recurring theme in a lot of classic film noir is the returning veteran and incorporation back into the society. Like mm -hmm. one of my, one of my favorite ones is uh, out of the past, which uh, in which Robert Mitchum plays uh, a returning veteran who is, you know, starting a, he, he, I mean, he, he gets involved in all this stuff, but, but, but that's the context for it. Also uh, crossfire mm -hmm. literally, um, which is one of my absolute, favorite film noirs because it, it has a, a strong you know a liberal social message to it also mm -hmm. takes place among veterans who have literally just gotten back from the war one of them uh kills uh kills a, a civilian and it's kind of like told in this flashback as many uh film film noirs are but and um what act of violence with van heflin is you know it involves something that happened in a POW camp and vengeance being taken for, you know, about that, you know, back in the United States, once both, both the pro protagonist and the antagonist get back. So it is a constant theme of like reincorporation into the society, dealing with the psychic pain sure. of, of world war two, figuring out what the, what the role of the returning veteran is dealing with that, that sometimes unspoken trauma, but sometimes like, you know, very, uh, you know, very clear trauma. Right. And in finding out what your place is with regard to how are you going to make money? How are you going to fit into society? What is your relationship with, with women when you get back? And that, that certainly highlights, you know, something that has been brought up and is a very legitimately problematic thing about film noir i mean you have yes. the, you have the you have the femme fatale mm -hmm. and often women are are not treated you know well they're they're dealt with as Expected you know being be dangerous leading you down the primrose path and right and so forth so it's interesting because what you just brought up there just again i just you know i think of echoes forward um one of the plots you described sounded almost like a version of rambo first blood um, you know, he's back, he's trying to reintegrate, yeah. he's not fitting yeah. in. And then I'm also thinking Deer Hunter yeah. as well. Like, yeah, he's back. And yeah. it's it just, I mean, again, both of these were shortly after another war. So it kind That's of right. makes a lot of sense that yeah. track, but just those weren't noir pieces or were they yeah um it's but, yeah it's yeah. it's weird because you're, you're you're right about both of those except these characters, you know, try to, you know, they put on suits and ties and they engage in nefarious behavior and all of that angst plays out within right. you know a typically you know urban you know crime sort of setting i find i i want to i want to jump in on the on the note you mentioned about you know they're wearing suits and ties do you do you think that's simply reflective of well you know this is this is what an adult male in in society in the late 40s this, this is just how everybody dressed 
or is there some level of symbolism involved in specifically like the the way the hero in hero in kind of air quotes the the protagonist right. in in film noir because i know you know the the image that that sticks in my head is you know the tie is kind of undone the collar is the collar is loosened right. Right. you know um and and is there a conscious level of symbolism in that or you know it's interesting to me because i mean i certainly always associate it with with that, that kind of dress it's particularly mm-hmm. early 1950s late 1940s style of dress where you have a a suit not only a suit but kind of a wide lapeled suits as right. opposed to you know the, mm-hmm. the smaller lapel suit that, that you got and and the kind of shorter tie which as you say is often askew or for for uh for women the uh you know, you know silk stockings you know maybe maybe still uh, you know a, a a fox fur something like like that sure um i guess i mm-hmm. see symbolism more in the disruption of that, like, you know, when the tie does go askew okay. or the hat gets knocked off or something like that. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily, okay. I, th- I think, I think that was conscious, but in terms of what they were wearing, it's, it's often kind of similar to what they were wearing in the screwball comedies in the 1930s or something like that. It's yeah. just, it's just set okay. in a very different context. And in, in a way that is sort of okay. what they do to these like static, genres of of film like mm-hmm. it, at least after 1934 when the when the Hayes office kicked in right um when censorship was mm-hmm. was really more buckled down um you did not see things in which like moral transgressions were not punished you didn't see like a a, a focus on on these negative uh moral morally questionable things because the Hayes office was sort of a reaction to things that were coming out of the 20s one in terms of female sexuality to mm-hmm. the gangsters that you allude to and the violence in which mm-hmm. they, they engaged and they weren't always punished for it and and for a long time you know at least for 10 years mostly that was that was next you know that right. like the, it was more static, okay. more more studio power, and then as you reach the other side of World War II, it becomes more questionable, and that is a big mainstay of of film noir. You know, you, getting gritty, going down the wrong path, sometimes getting punished for it, sure. sometimes not completely, um, but there. But it's a focus on characters who do bad things, and that had not existed for a while, and that is definitely a mainstay. Film war. Do you think that that ability to transgress post-war um, wasn't? I'm not saying this is the only factor, but wasn't enabled in some way by the sneakiness of screwball comedy. I mean, screwball comedy comes in yeah. right after the Hayes Code, and it's like, mm-hmm. oh, we can't have sex. Fine, right. we're going to have sex verbally, and right. it's going to be all about your frustration and you never yeah. getting off. Like, and yeah. and so totally. just that. <laughs> Dancing up to the line, the I'm not touching you kind of aspect of it. And then yes. that just getting completely obliterated by violence. And those two things kind of dovetailing into, yeah. uh, you know, you've got, we can we can do the violence now. And we've moved the bar enough from Hayes mm-hmm. through clever talk and, and things like that, that now we can do, you know, focus on bad people doing bad things. Who, they might not get punished ultimately, but there's almost always a scene where he takes a crack to the jaw or his yeah. hair is slightly akimbo instead of mm-hmm. 
neatly shellacked back. Totally. And, yeah. And it occurs to me also, like you said, the the connection you made, the 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 suits that they wear. I was I was thinking of um, it happened one night. You know, that very big, mm-hmm. right? You know, David Byrne style suit where, <laughs> uh, um, where uh, what if it's that like that purposeful use of it? I mean, you're talking about using the same style that's that was ten years earlier. Right, or if you're talking about like Cary Grant, who who in in bringing a right. baby who becomes completely disrobed and has has to put a has a, to put a, a you know a woman's negligee right. on or something like that, they, they are they're constantly yeah. <laughs> playing with stuff like that, and and not only are they they continuing to deal with those uh, uh, sexual issues right. in a way that's sublimated through this language and just you know kind of kind of bubbles towards the surface. I mean, you can look at. Um, and this is this is a part that they put in later once they mm-hmm. had filmed uh, the, the movie The Big Sleep between uh, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Like there's a whole scene where they meet together in a restaurant and they're talking about like horse ra- racing and who's in the saddle. And there's right. all sorts of sexual innuendo going back and forth. And and that that that's also in Double Indemnity between uh, Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck. All sorts of stuff, which, by the way, the the screenplay on that was written by Raymond Chandler, uh, based on an original book uh, by uh, by James M. Cain, and that kind of purple prose and that sexually charged uh, verbiage right. definitely continues and become and as a as a mainstay. But then on top of that, you have dealing with the violence of World War II. You you don't see that as much as in the 1930s, but right. But there's there's violence. There's there's people brooding and thinking about. You well, know, it had been in all the newsreels. We we've right. seen so much newsreel violence that now we right. can take it. And in many ways, the violence I think uh, um, sub not not sublimates, but um, subsumes the sex mm-hmm. talk. Right. You know, so right. now but, the but, but, yeah. but to the point where, are, like, you know, yeah. hundreds of thousands of American men right. had gone overseas and killed people. Yes. And and they had seen people's like, you know, I mean, a, a generation was exposed to that. So yeah. like yeah. like like yeah. you, you look at these movies afterwards and, you know, yeah, there was a lot of drinking and smoking, but it just goes it goes up exponentially and people right. are brooding and they're like and they're they're screwed up and they're drinking and they're smoking and they are dealing with a lot of stuff. And it's not always mentioned literally, but that is the background to all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I, I guess the reason why I engage with that, and, and I, I'm going to try to win you over, Damien. I'm going to yeah. try to, like, point out a few things that, that you can, because <laughs> I, I don't even necessarily think that the, the Maltese Falcon is the best example of it. it I, I think okay. it's an early example of what it started to become in a certain kind of structure. But but what you see there, the the phrase that the phrase that we frequently use is it's the trope codifier. It's the yeah. one that that <laughs> right. lays down, you know this this is this is how we're going to structure this going forward. Right. Mm-hmm. You well, know, so whether it's whether it's the most important or the best is kind of immaterial. It's it's the one that everybody points to as okay. This is where this is where we see this. It's you know, the Westinghouse fixed. to the originals Edison. In in, in yeah. some yeah. way, in same ways, it is. But like like so many post war films, like employ much more um, of of the chiaroscuro and low key lighting that a, a lot of European mm. directors, like oh, uh, I mean yeah, Jacques, yeah. Jacques Turner of uh, uh, who did Out of the Past, uh, Fritz Lang, Robert right. Siadamak, um, uh I mean, so okay. many of these guys. It, it's much more dramatic 
like like as you progress into the 1940s and mm-hmm. and, and and i like the uh the maltese falcon but it doesn't have like quite all the element i mean def- it has the femme fatale in in mary astor sure right but you know it's it's almost the way it's filmed it has you know, the homophobia uh, yeah. It, you know, it, it definitely has a home of it, it. It has all of these things. Right. And and to my mind, yeah, I mean, you, you can't separate it from from like all that cultural baggage. Right. That, no, you, that, you shouldn't. That, that, that was a, that was uh, yeah. that was a part of its time. And and they're all cartoonish to a certain degree. I mean, you know, they're these oh, yeah. big gruff heroes and like sultry women and everything like that. And yeah, like they're all sorts of like caricatures and like, you know, I mean, that's. That's part of it. You're, you're not going to be looking for um, <laughs> you're you're not going to be looking at modern points of view in these. But right, if if you understand what the context is, you could you could you, it's just fascinating to me how these movies deal with one coming out of this incredibly violent watershed. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with like restructuring society? How do we deal with like the the economy? Um, you know, and 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 all of these things like are just to me in a way, in addition to like being these incredibly cool visuals, just kind of a big psychic blast of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of coolness and weirdness at the same time. That's how I would encapsulate it. OK, so so in the in the post-war period, uh, you know, we have I want to I want to get your I want to get your take on on an idea that that occurs to me. There is, uh, you know, all, all all the GIs return home from the war, and while they've been gone, uh, their sisters, their girlfriends, their wives have been working in the factories to fuel the war machine, mm-hmm. and now they're coming back, and all of those women are getting sent home, so yeah. that these men now have a job to come home to. Do you think the, um, as you as you say, kind of cartoonish, uh, gender interaction, gender roles that we see portrayed in these films, might have in some way been fueled by a level of insecurity, no based doubt. on the knowledge that while they'd been gone, their 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 places had been held by these yeah. these same women. Yeah, no, no doubt, and I and I have no doubt that that is the psychic center of the femme fatale. You come back from okay. the war, you have uh, women who uh, who have had jobs outside the home, mm-hmm. who have some money, who have confidence, who are who are more confident in their 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 own expressing their own se- sexuality, mm-hmm. and and I think you have a whole generation of men or at least a subset of, of a generation of men whom that like frightens the bejesus out of. And I think a lot <laughs> of the people who, who, who are, who are writing this stuff are either consciously or subconsciously reacting to the, to, to that. Um, and, okay. and that's, that's, uh, that to me is a big part of where the femme fatale comes from. Now, my take on that in terms of, you know, what do we get out of that? Is that just a bad thing? To me, I look at that, okay, like, you know, women are, okay, (laughs) admittedly, usually they are put in the context of something that's, that's dangerous, that's going to take you down the wrong path. Nevertheless, this historically for me is a manifestation for the first time outside of, say, 
you know, social dilettantes, uh, you know, from 1930s screwball comedies like Carol Lombard or Catherine Hepburn. Right. Like here, here is here women of from the middle or lower class who actually have power and who are and right. who are confident. And 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 these these stories do not always put them in in a good light. But you can see that this is something significantly different that it, that is being presented that mm-hmm. has not been presented in, in in a big way before. And that to me is significant. Yeah, I think uh, you know. Again, uh, screwball comedy is is where I I keep coming from on this, uh, partially because oh, yeah, yeah. that's that's what I wrote my bachelor's thesis on. Um, but uh, I I think that there's something to be said as the agents of chaos that the women were in screwball comedies, mm-hmm. deliberately so, and and they were agents of chaos within a closed system of logic. Like I remember, she turns off the lights. Why? Because I don't want the electricity. No, no, she. Um, she unscrews the light bulbs. Why? Well, because that way the electricity doesn't leak into the light bulb. It makes perfect sense. <laughs> and she draws you into it, right? Um, you know, Catherine mm-hmm. Hepburn making you sing to a leopard, uh, right, right, you know, right. shit like that. Like it all just makes sense, even though it shouldn't. And you're kind of brought along and it disrupts this. It, it The whole point of screwball is frustration, you know, frustrating yeah. the man, right? Yeah. Um, now that is zany. It's fun. It's um, It's silly. It's kooky. Um, it's still not challenging the man's dominant place. It's it's disrupting his place, but he still will land in a commanding spot. Whereas after the war, yeah. men come home, and I mean one of the one of the things about a uh, 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 film noir is that you always have the femme fatale, but you always also have the loyal angel. Like you know, you've got the blonde whose hair is straight, mm-hmm. um, and she's yeah. always his secretary. You have a working woman featured. So you've got a working class woman featured as the ideal or certainly uh, a far more ideal than the femme fatale. Um, And so you still have that safety. And then you've got and the femme fatale is not an agent of chaos here. She is a menace. And I think the the upper class twit, as as Ed likes to put it, um, the the dilettante. She's a disruptor, but then you have a woman that you need to protect, and you have a woman you essentially have, you know, the woman that you want to come home to, and then the woman that you've come home to, you know, and mm-hmm. you've got that yeah. being represented very often in stark black and white contrast in the yeah. film noir. Yeah. And yeah. there's menace to her now. She's almost always deadly in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. And you've got yeah, the well, you in, in, yeah. in in that dynamic, um, that's i mean that that dynamic uh the the yin yang of that i completely borrow a cultural term but the the mm-hmm. dichotomy uh involved in that i mean that dates back to you know madonna oh, whore right. as a as a as a concept that's 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 yes. been a trope since before written before the written word the two marys but, you know? but the context of it i think i think yeah. you're right yeah um and i i think i think though that you're you're onto something with with the context having shifted on it for sure yeah um you know but i i think i think it's I, my my take on it is it's it's an evolution of that yeah no i that I, I would i would say that there are a lot of movies from the film noir era that that contain that sort of secondary uh, character that you're talking about, certainly like there's the, um, I forget who, who plays her, but um, in Out of the Past, Robert uh, Mitchum is like explaining the story of 
of like what happened with uh, him and Greer Garson to this woman who's kind of like the 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 pure chaste ideal in in act of violence a young uh um janet lee is uh is van heflin's wife and and actually mary astor kind of kind of uh, plays a prostitute that he gets involved with as he's being as being he's being chased by fellow uh veteran robert ryan but but i i would i would say and 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 then the secretary, um, you know, Effie Perrine that you allude to in uh, in the in the Maltese uh, Falcon, mm-hmm. certainly there too. A lot of the time, though, um, it's you know th- there isn't that secondary character, and sometimes oh, it's okay. just a femme, femme fatale. And I you know I, sure. I I don't want to let film noirs like off the hook. I mean they are problematic, right. and 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 there's not always even the the dichotomy. Some sometimes, sometimes the hmm. female character is is just bad, like the right. like like in in Edgar yeah. Ulmer's, uh, you know, a detour, like like for seemingly no reason, like she's just angry at this guy, and she and she's like got him over a barrel, and and he, she just like completely like screws screws up his life. Right. So um, it, it's there. You're right, and I and I see a pattern of it, but a lot of the time it's it's even more roughly misogynistic than that okay fair oh wow so it it also occurs to me that 1947 is when we see levittown being built Mm. yes and there is this very there's this very uh polished very idealized idea of what everybody ought to want which is yeah the house in the suburbs with the 2.5 kids and like you say the loyal wife that you go home to yeah um and and literally white picket fences was was actually one of the standard you know upgrades on a on a levitt built house um or you can so retreat wonder... to the fantasy of the dark world of crime on the other side of the tracks that's yeah. Nice. So okay. Yeah, that was that was kind of kind of where I was going with that. Do you think? Do you think to some extent this genre is an escape from the cultural straitjacket that that some of these men might have felt was being put around them? Yeah, I, I do, and and I I know like my grandfather was uh one of the I, I think he worked as a PR agent for, and he was he to this day if you go to the lake. Uh, um, the 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 Lakewood, um, California um, you know, museum. He's one of the the founding pillars of the community of Lakewood. He staged a a photograph that was on the cover of Time or Look, I or I forget which, in which there are all these like moving trucks in on a single uh, uh, street. You had Lakewood on the west coast. You had Levittown on the east coast. You had other places uh, like it around the country, and. Yeah, psychically, that kind of like forms this like, as you say, a, a, a straitjacket because coming home from the war, you had you had this structure. Now, what's going to replace that? Well, is is it consumerism? Is, is it materialism? Is it is it the is it the suburbs? And and um, do you can you live culturally only with with that? It's it, it's very limiting. So. Yeah, this can definitely be taken as as a reaction to that, and and certainly not everyone you know fit into that, and they were still trying to find their place. It was, I mean, it was a turbulent time. 
it was a turbulent time and people mm -hmm. were trying to figure stuff out. And I absolutely believe that it was a cultural reaction to that. You know, also, okay. since we're playing with the date uh, 1947, obviously, you have the Marshall Plan. So you've got mm -hmm. a desire to restabilize the world. Um, you've got America turning uh, Japan into essentially another Gaul um, mm -hmm. on, on some levels. I mean, it, it, MacArthur certainly saw himself as Caesar having been sent to Gaul. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then you also have in 48, uh, you have... Um, Oh, forget I, is 8801. It's uh, the executive order that desegregates the army or the army. Right. Forces. Okay. Right. That's yeah. 48. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, these, these, these films are also overwhelmingly white. They um, are. Yeah. I can, you know, I can think of very few like characters, characters of, of, yeah. of color at all. Like um, impact 1947, like has mm -hmm. a sort of secondary character at anime Wong. That's the only one I can think of off the top wow. of my head. And yeah. so there you go. Like you, you have like this, this also this psychic frustration of, I'm going to use the phrase that they would have used, can't a man, and really what yeah. it is is can't a white man, uh, yeah. no, that's, you know, find that's his true. way in this world, you know, and and yeah. I mean these are made for white audiences and so on and so forth, um, you know, and you you I mean, geez, you again, I come back to the clothing. I I'm fascinating at the fact that or fascinated at the fact that that I think that that choice of clothing might. I don't know if it was purposeful, but it was certainly influential. If they're picking yeah. the same clothes that are out of style now that you went through rationing about, you had literal riots where where service members were attacking young kids for wearing the same clothing, just mm -hmm. uh, to a slightly more cartoonish level because they were zoot, zoot suits. But you have the same clothing as you had in the 30s. It's almost like you have the same ideology and the same expectations mm. pre and post war. Yeah. It's represented mm -hmm. in the fact that he's wearing a suit that's usually wrinkled. Uh, he's wearing a suit that is kind of out of touch with the times, or at least the last grasping reach back to a simpler time. It's a hearkening, yeah. if you will. Yeah. And and I don't know, there's, there's something mm -hmm. really interesting about that when you take a look at the fact that now Japanese people are being uh, reintegrated into society. And white people don't have a choice, despite all the native sons of California groups that got started. Mm -hmm. um, black people are being integrated into society to a greater degree. Um, yeah. You know, again, without white people getting to have a choice in it. And yet you also have Levittown, which is, oh, OK, well, we're just going to go over here and, and, you know, white flight it. Uh, yeah. A bit. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah. So I, I just I. You know how I am about this stuff. So uh, Truman signed Executive Order 9981 on there 26 July 1948. Yeah. What you mentioned, uh, 8801, you might have been thinking of Order 8802, which was June of 41, which banned discriminatory, discriminatory yeah. employment practices by federal agencies. Yeah. So well, there's the eight and the one in it. Of the same well. cloth. Yeah. 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 So thank you. Yeah. Sorry, and then, and and, and forty seven is when you get out of the past and crossfire. I mean, this is like when, yeah. And and, cro and crossfire, interestingly, is one of the few that kind of does like deal like even if indirectly with with those issues. Like it starts out like the very first scene of of the movie, like some like someone's beating someone else up. You don't see what their faces because like there's a there's a lamp that's the only light in the room. It's been knocked over. You don't see their faces. You like. One guy's getting pummeled. The body is still. The other guy 
straightens a tie, walks out of the room. And you find out that it, you know, as the, as the movie progresses, that it's, uh, it's a Jewish guy that's, that's been killed by uh, a returning war veteran who's motivated by anti-Semitism. And, and this is one of the few issues, the few films that like touches on that, but almost in, in no other place that, that I am aware of do those come out. I mean, it's, it's almost completely wow. from, from a perspective of, you know, you know, the white guy, you know, and what is my place? Mm-hmm. What is my power going to be? And I, I really do, do think Ed too, that, that you're right, that yeah, rationing has been, like taken away, the lapels are getting wider. There's, you know, kind of an, a more over the top feel to the suits uh, now, and the, mm-hmm. and the fedoras, and that and that's emphasized. There's there's a little bit more ambient wealth, but it's it's weird and kind of out of place. And the the sort of like German expressionist cast that's put on all of this yeah. makes it look bizarre and <laughs> geometric sometimes. Sure. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I had a thought and it left. Um, I'll I'll come back to it if it. If well, it, let me ask. Let me ask you Sorry. this. Um, you you talk of these movies as you've seen them. I've not. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you take me through one of them? Uh, one that's either iconic or very demonstrative of some of these concepts that you're talking about. Like, talk mm-hmm. me through the plot of it. Not not just the synopsis, but like, or not just like the 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 elevator pitch, but like, you know, take take me through Luke Skywalker's day. You know that kind of that kind of thing. Okay. Tell me about Star Wars. Give me the ten minute version. You gotcha. Know, okay. Because I think so, that'll so, that'll help a lot of our audience members who are like, "What the hell is film noir?" Right. Okay. So let's let's deal with one of my favorites, which is Please. out of the past. Okay. okay. So um, the the main character played by uh, Robert Mitchum, he's found at the beginning of of the movie and it, um, running a a um, a garage somewhere in this small little town in the valley in, in California. And guy comes up to him and this is like a figure from his past. He's the assistant for, for uh, a gangster who's played by uh, a young Kirk Douglas, actually, wow. uh, who's been looking to find Robert Mitchum for uh, a long, long time. And he realizes uh He's going to have to go see him when you see Robert Mitchum. Okay. He, his, he has an assistant who's uh, at his garage. Who's uh, who's a, a deaf mute. He goes, he realized, wow. Okay. I'm going to have to go and see this guy. And uh, I've, in the meantime, I've developed a new life. He has a, a girlfriend um, played by this, you know, kind of young, pure woman. And much of the story is told as he's, driving to see Kirk Douglas, the gangster, he's telling all of this in flashback as it happens. Okay. So the flashback is, okay, here's honey. I'm going to have to go see this guy. I may not be coming back. I don't know what's going to happen, but I, I want you to know that I have this dark past um, and I want to tell you about it. And I want to come clean because you're important to me. And so as he's driving, he says, okay, I used to be uh, a detective and, and my partner and I, went to see this uh, guy who was, who was a, a gangster and his girlfriend uh, shot him. So that's Kirk Douglas and, um, and Greer Garson. Um, I, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I, I don't, I don't think that's the, the correct name of the actress, but she, um, she shoots him and he wants to track her down 
and and he wants it he wants his money back he doesn't want to revenge exacted on her at least you know supposedly and he sends the two of them uh to like he he wants to get her bring her bring her back mm-hmm. you know get his get his money back and so um robert mitchum manages to track her down but also like loses his partner as a part of the process that two of them meet together in Mexico, they, they hit it off. They like, they fall in love. And so like he keeps sending messages back to uh, Kirk Douglas and his toady saying, Oh, I haven't been able to find her. I haven't been able to find her, blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, they're having, you know, fun in Mexico. So he finally, Kirk Douglas shows up unexpectedly and says well how's the hunt going here and he said oh well i haven't been able to find her you know and then he manages to get out of there and and um and leave with with her without for douglas finding out they go together back to california and but meanwhile his partner his detective partner has tracked the two of them them down because he's still working for Kirk Douglas. So they get into a confrontation. They get into a fistfight in this very famous scene that's like kind of low-key lit where Robert Mitchum's hair is flying all over the place, but he's still got his his uh, his trench coat on and they're punching each other and their shadows are cast on the wall. Hmm. And then suddenly a shot rings out and the femme fatale is kind of pressed against the wall with the, with with uh, with her gun. She shoot, shoots um, his partner detective, and then while he's checking out to confirm that he's dead, she runs off, gets into the car, drives off, never sees her again, and then it dissolves back into he's telling the story to his present girlfriend. So they connect again. Uh-huh. It, he's gotten together. He's gotten together with um, um, the, the his. Uh, the 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 femme fatale is back with Kirk Douglas. They, they have this you know, beautiful setting, almost like from The Godfather Part Two, uh, overlooking uh, Lake Tahoe, and he gets into this whole thing. Kirk Douglas tries to 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 frame him for a, for a, a crime, and and meanwhile, um, the the femme fatale is is double dealing with her uh and and everything and finally they managed to off him they both go off uh together and and as they're driving uh, away they run into a police uh block uh blocking uh blocking the road a police checkpoint she shoots robert mitchum and then like the police shoot her and they're both dead dead and gone and the original girlfriend back in the small town with the um with the uh where he ran the garage mm-hmm. like she ends up with a with a local cop who is investigating him so in that case like justice is done but he was led down the, the primrose path by the right. by the femme fatale so mm-hmm. i i would i would strongly recommend that the visuals are incredible robert mitchum is just like at at his at his smoothest and most uh you know he's smoothest and cockiest mm-hmm. and and the 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 language is great the acting is is great it's it's very well done i would highly recommend that 
Sounds like the cinematography is off the hook too. Like it is, it, it really is. You get a it lot is. of shadow work, a lot yeah. of um, it, you know, anytime I see uh, stuff where it's shot where the shadows are doing the action, it it, it you know obviously takes me back to Plato's Cave, you know, and so yeah. it's like they're, we're they're... watching our darker selves. There's there's so much to play with with that, you know, and and our darker selves yeah. are always a grotesque version of us because they're elongated because their actions are projections and not and and in some ways reflections but they're projections of what we wish we could do and, and things like that so yeah you know. in the scene with his detective partner and 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 fighting where the in the cabin where the shadows are cast on the wall i, I can i can totally see that like there, yeah. there's there's some just amazing scenes that's that's is, the is there is there a lot of work from low camera angles too because i'm i'm picturing this in my head and everything is you know, camera close to floor level. Yeah, in in that in that scene, it is, and and there there are a couple like you know, okay. especially in dark rooms where they're meeting them. Not you know, like not all the time. Like for example, like okay. when they're in Mexico, that it's supposed to be a kind of halcyon thing, and it's almost like you know, it's it, it's it's like that. That's sort of like the the romantic phase of it. But when it, they get into the dark scenes, mm-hmm. and when he when he's being you know framed, and when there's that that central fight. Yeah, that's definitely there. when the world's closing in okay. on him. It sounds exactly. like it opens up for the for the Mexican yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it's all it's all based on the frame of mind of the protagonist. And that's that's interesting to me because cool. uh, and you said that was what you're 47. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, 47 okay, so out late of the 40s. past. So, yeah. I mean, you're I mean, they're playing with framing. They're playing with perspective. They're playing with focus, playing with shadows. Um, They're they're also going to Mexico. Yeah. You know, the Bracero program is, I think it's been renewed by that point because there was a point after the war where Mexico is like, yo, you, you've you got to stop being shitty to our people. And like they banned <laughs> Texas. Texas, it's almost like Green yep. Day in Sacramento. Like we don't play Texas, you know, and yeah. they banned Texas for the longest time. So you had this weird scab labor thing going on. Um, but I think by 47, 48, they renewed the Bracero program with more stuff put in there. So you see Mexico is being a larger part of the news cycle if such a thing existed at the right. time um a right. larger a larger contribution to the zeitgeist on some levels and and also um you know it's it's just interesting because i always think of noir being so urbanized and yet this is almost pastoral from what you're describing you, you know in, in a way not primarily because of 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 mexico and let me just mm-hmm. let me just say that it does not put Mexico or Mexican people in in a good light. The one character that you can that's memorable at all is the kind of like guy who's trying to sell you a watch and like guide right. you around. And it's a total like stereotype. Like sure. it's just like Andy you know, really happy it, to play him. Exactly. It's 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 played it's it's played on <laughs> played for a laugh line. It's right. it is it is not it is not good. Sure. But um but the and, fact that it's and, and you can look at you can look at something like um Gosh, what is it? Uh, what is the one um, that uh, Orson Welles did? Um, Nineteen fifty. Touch oh, of Evil. Oh, oh, that is that is yeah. that is particularly bad because Charlton Heston is basically playing in brownface with um, with uh, Janet Lee as, as as his wife. And though there are some very gar- good parts in that film, it just like you know, I mean, it, it all kinds it, of problems. It, there's there's all sorts yeah. of baggage with that, but yeah. In out of the past, actually, a lot of the action takes place in this, you know, in the in either Lake Tahoe, mm-hmm. in in a small town. I think it's supposed to be like Bridgeport, 
near near the Sierras. Okay. Um, it's it, it, it and uh, the the kind of culminating scene, which I keep describing, is is in a cabin in the woods. And yeah, there are scenes where they're in San Francisco, and he's trying to he's he's being framed in the latter part of the film, and he's going around in a taxi and stuff. But it's it's not purely set in urban so in in that way it's a, it, it it is a little bit atypical but it has all sure. those other key elements of turning in terms of lighting and femme right. fatale and the and and all of the themes that we've uh, discussed no i just I, I i always like to look at the influences at the time kind of thing and and again yeah. it is interesting that mexico plays a part as a set piece in it you know it's, yeah. it's interesting yeah. to me that they're also talking about tahoe because Right. Uh, we see this, uh, like you said, with Godfather Part Two, right? They moved their operations right. to Tahoe, and right. that's set in the fifties. So, like this period of time, there is a move toward these little hamlet places, um, right. you know, away from the city, away from the the corrupting influence uh, mm-hmm. of of the city and stuff like that. And yet, you can't get away from the noirness, uh, yeah. the noirete, yeah, uh, <laughs> of it. So, it's okay. Cool. So that's so. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, uh, when you're talking about the the urban versus rural, mm-hmm. um, I don't remember the title of the movie. It, it's totally not a not a noir, but it's a it's a I want to say it's a comedy. But there was there was a film that I think is around this same time period uh, that uh, the the central conceit is there's this little town someplace in the Midwest that is this uh, secret magic button. Uh, for anybody who wants to take a poll because the population breakdown of this little town oh, is right. this magical microcosm of of the rest of the country. And this, you know, city slicker, you know, uh, goes to this town because uh, one of his war buddies is from there. And one of and and he winds up totally screwing everything up because, you know, he he starts polling it, it, you know, it gets out that this is the secret of of how his polls are also accurate. Right. And so everybody shows up and and everything gets completely wonky. But uh, one of the conversations in that film is like his army buddy from the war talking to him <clears> about, you know, uh, you know, it's funny. I remember you talking about, you know, in our unit you were the only one of us who was from the big city and, and there was at this time, this is very shortly either before or after the majority of Americans weren't living in small towns anymore. The majority of Americans were now living in urban centers and the depiction of the herb mm-hmm. in, in noir it strikes me could have been a, a reflection of, of like the, the conflicted feelings mm-hmm. that, that were there in the zitgeist about that development. Am I, am I stretching here? You know, I'm, I'm not sure, but you're talking about magic town with yes. Jane Wyman and, 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 and Jimmy Stewart. I, I, I hadn't remembered the name of it, but I, I was Ooh. frantically looking it up in the background we've, and Googling different terms. That's the one we've got we're our Reagan about. connection. All right, there we go. The show we, we have <laughs> stayed point. within contract. So but there are a few things that we have to do in our contract for this show. Uh, one, I have to have a pun. Uh, two, every sixth episode, I have to do some sort of alliterative paragraph that actually fits to what we're doing. Uh, don't worry, we're still three episodes out from that. 
Um, three, I have to mention pro wrestling. Uh, and four, Ronald Reagan has to come up. There we so, go. Uh, That's and, it. and oh, five, yeah. Ed has to say no, no, um, at least once. So just a, just a single degree of separation there. Exactly. You're, you're all exactly. set. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> okay. So Magic Town. Okay. That's 1947, by the way. Jesus. Yeah. Oh, and right 47 and 48. I mean, I, I, I wonder if I shouldn't hold this for the next episode, if there's going to need to be one. Um, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it in here now, and perhaps that'll spin us off. Um, TV is just coming into the four. Like, yeah. it, it's, I mean, by yeah. the time we get to 55 or so, you're starting to see TV as a a fairly regular um, almost tropey thing. Like, you know, people are still gathering at each other's houses to watch the TV um, on the mm-hmm. giant console with the tiny screen, but but it is a thing. Like, you know, 47, 48, you start to see, here's the wrestling, uh, you start to see uh, professional <laughs> wrestling showing up on local television. <laughs> Don't forget Uncle Milty. That's right. Uh, and also, you know, you yeah. have the Colgate hour and all kinds of, you know, soap hours and shit like that. Um is there an interplay that's happening? Lucky um, Strike sponsoring everything. <laughs> Chesterfields. Speaking of Ronald Reagan, um, is there a a yeah. interplay that's happening here? Uh, a reactive aspect here. TV goes whole hog into family stuff. Um, pretty pretty early, not right away, but pretty early on. Is that a rubber band effect to what's going on with noir or is noir more of a like we look back and like, oh, my God, this is so big a deal. But back then it was just kind of and also that was playing. You know, what yeah. I mean? yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's there's definitely a contrast because it's so much of early television, you know, a, a lot of it for the first decade is is so relatively like stayed and conventional compared to the uh, the movies that were going on at okay. at the time and i and i don't really think that that artistically they were necessarily thinking oh we've got to like fight back against television and, and be more artsy or anything like that i think primarily what these were i mean mm-hmm. i mean there's a, an economic frame to this as well within the industry you're talking mm-hmm. about crime dramas which are relatively easy to make and enticing in terms uh, of of plot they're they're relatively inexpensive to make they don't have right. a lot of special effects they don't always necessarily have enormous stars or anything like that or they focus cast. on these yeah exactly yeah. big they don't have big casts they, i mean I, I mean they don't have huge sets and a, a lot of those things are concealed by the sort of like low-key lighting and chiaroscuro right. that we've been talking about so I, I i don't know i i kind of think that they're just kind of going along separate uh you know tracks at that point okay i think i, I my, my impression is that eventually the film noir is kind of like overtaken by other phenomena in the film industry and the increased popularity of 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 television is certainly mm-hmm. one of the the things that like causes it to die down a little bit and maybe it, oh. ex- explore other things you know, I mean, there's also like at, in the late 50s and early 1960s, the epic, which is designed to compete with like the small screen, which can over only offer so right. much and and designed to make use of of the theater and, and the color and the widescreen and everything like that. Sure, sure. So they're tending away from the sort of thing that. My television anyway, 
So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess I don't see that okay. so much, but, but I think it took a while for television by and large to get more nuanced and more in, interesting. I, I think I, you know, like once you get into stuff that, um, you know, like the, 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 the twilight zone and the early plays right. of, um, Patty Chayefsky and stuff like that, you, you get some interesting writing, but at, at the beginning, a lot of it is almost just like, you know, a film to radio show or something like that. Yeah. You know, a not, lot not, of not, not too much different than that. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Like a lot of variety, a lot of situational comedies that could have been audio only, um, you know, yeah. things like that. Yeah. Um, what about, uh, so I'm, I'm just also thinking um, as we wind down this episode, um, what about, because we talked, Ed, Ed talked about insecurity and we talked about the psychic trauma mm-hmm. and things like that. And in the 1950s, we see a resurgence of, and some of it's atomic-based, right? You know, a fear of a nuclear world kind of thing. But we see a resurgence of monster horror films. We see, resur- see a resurgence of horror films in general, but they're all very specifically like, you know, the, them. And I mean, I think, Ed, correct me if I'm wrong, is that that when the Gojira movies started in Japan as well, right? Um, now that's obviously oh, yeah. not responding to noir, but Explicitly. like... Explicitly. Yeah, like everybody is really scared of monsters, you know, and yeah. you start to get into and then you get to the psychological thriller that kind of pops out of that. But is is horror like taking up some of the air that noir is is trying to do for us in terms of answering to those insecurities and those those traumas? Yeah, I think it's kind of responding to an uh, uh, it, it's transitioning into a new set of fears. And you do see stuff again, like like Kiss Me Deadly which de- deals with, you know, nuclear material and, and, the, and the Mike Hammer character, you know, trying to take nuclear material and, and it all blowing up in this, uh, in this beach house at the end of the movie. But, but that's 1955 and that's like relatively late. I, I, I feel like as you transition into the late 50s, sci-fi uh and and other similar things whether you're talking mm-hmm. about Godzilla there, there's a there's a new and emerging set of of fears that mm-hmm. um oh. kind of transcends the boundaries of 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 genre of the genre film noir that really okay. can't be dealt with with within its confines and um you certainly see less of them I, I think it's equally got to do with like economic forces in play and just like an interest in other things. And maybe sure. that has to do with, maybe that has to do with Sputnik that, you know, is launched yeah. in addition to everything that's going on with the, with the, uh, the cold war in addition to, uh, you know, the, the, the arms race and so forth. Um, but you, you, you have new and emerging locuses of public interest that filter their way into the culture that really, there isn't room for that in film noir, at least not within that particular genre. And again, I don't yeah, think they were thinking sense. of it in the genre. It's like within within crime, it's right. sort of like it, it's 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 kind of too narrow for that. Sure. Yeah. And I guess now that I now that uh, you, you've said that and I think about it a little bit uh, more, um, you know, horror films are there's an existential uh, fear, whereas mm. noir seems to be almost a. There's a depression. You know, yeah. there there is a yeah a post traumatic response, not a fear response. Yeah, um, no, that's a good point. Mm, that's a good yeah. point. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah, 
Yeah. No, I, I, yeah. I mean, like just Bert I. Gordon, producer of many schlocky films from that passed away just recently at the age of, 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 of a hundred. Um, and um, also the I, frozen I, food magnate, right? Was he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably so. Yeah. yeah. Or someone in the family. I don't know. Sure. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, um, it, but, but, but all the, all these weird, you know, I mean, uh, you know, like this science fiction stuff. I mean, like the, the original like monster movies of the universal era. I mean, I think mm -hmm. that was responding to a, a fear of the economic trauma that was going on at, on at that time oh. uh, uh, globally. And I think that like when you look at the science fiction stuff of the late uh, of the late 50s and the early 1960s, you're looking at a response to you know, the possibilities of nuclear warfare and 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 the Cold War. And yeah, um, I, I there's, there's there's just, uh, you know, it's it's this wonderful period of time and it comes back because like they're all especially in the 1970s there's a resurgence of interest in it right. once you reach once you reach a different era but but in terms of dealing with that kind of issue i mean maybe there's some examples out there that folks could prove me wrong with but i i, I just don't see room within that for for that kind of delving like science fiction is is ideal for it because it's it involves all these new technologies and things that we're desperately trying to wrap our mm. our heads around where right. it encapsulates these things that have been around for a long time but all these the order is changing and we're trying to grapple with it internally and 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 this is more of a response to external forces okay yeah I can I can see that that yes, I believe, sure. <laughs> yes, <laughs> nice, cool. Well done. Well, um, I think this is actually a good breaking point because I have lots of questions about the resurgence of it. So, um, I think in our next episode we can we can talk about that. So, um, I guess yeah, the, we've we've gotten into quite a bit here. I, I, I'm liking it. Uh, yeah. as, as I always ask after, uh, an episode is over, uh, Ed, what have you gleaned? Um, I think it's, I think it's remarkable what a, uh, what a time capsule the genre kind of is mm -hmm. the, the intensity, like the, the number of times in, in our, in our discussion this time around how how the years the specific years of like 47 and 48 kept coming back around yeah. um i think it's it's uh eye-opening to me uh to the extent to which this this was the crystallization i think uh of of a, of a whole lot of psychic stuff going on uh, in this very specific moment in time. And, and I had never, I had never taken the time to, to think about the context of it in that kind of depth. And I think it's really illuminating. Uh, ironically enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I really, again, the 1948, 1947 connection, uh, is, is palpable. I mean, it's, it's, it's as Ed often will say, it's the pattern on the wallpaper that you never noticed until now. And now mm -hmm. you can't unsee it, um, you know, and it's absolutely. Uh, and, and for it to have such a short 
uh, run as a genre. And, you know, we have to keep in mind, we we imposed structures upon the past all the time. We talk in terms of decades, bullshit. Things don't happen in terms of decades. We talk yeah. in terms of like, well, this genre started <laughs> with this and ended with this. You know, I did it with, with uh, screwball comedy and we're doing it here with noir. And that's a very useful model to look at. But it, the, the reality is, is that nobody sets out in the beginning to make, I'm going to make a noir piece. And nobody at the end goes, this will be the end of noir pieces. Um, somewhere in the middle, somebody's like, I've figured out the formula. Um, but everyone else is kind of like, you know, trying to make art. Um, <laughs> yes. so. Yeah. Or trying to make a buck, really. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. this is a popular genre of film. Hey, exactly. Run that exactly. up the flagpole. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those are the the, the formulaic uh, folk and, and good for them. You know, uh, there's nothing wrong with Thomas Kincaid. I just don't want it in my house. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> there's plenty wrong with Thomas Kincaid, but <laughs> he knows what he's I done. take your point. But <laughs> Um, he but yes, in, he does. As a matter of fact, <laughs> but um, you know, I I do think now it's, it's just the same yeah. genre. It's not actually Thomas Kincaid who did Trump writing on a dinosaur, right? Or correct? Yeah, no, correct. it's no, it's yeah. not. Okay. Kincaid but died of he could similar back. So right. okay, um, yeah. but he is known as a painter of light. So that's two things that I've talked about that have to do with light in the film noir episode. Uh, but yeah. uh, more to the point, uh, that it's such a short-lived lived drama uh, genre. You know, it, essentially, we're talking what forty-seven to fifty-five. If we were going to put an overlay on it, right? Yeah, fifty fifty-eight. You know, I've definitely okay. gone by sixty. Yeah. Um, you know, same thing as we saw with um with uh screwball comedy thirty-four to forty-three, like and and forty-three is yeah. pushing it. Like if you consider Hell's a Poppin' yeah. to be one as Variety Magazine did, um, then okay, fine. Uh, but Variety Magazine recognized it as one simply to declare the death of, of Screwball. So, um, and and they weren't wrong either. You know, it, it had died. And, and for reasons that I think episode like 24 will show you. Um, but, uh, you yeah. know, it, it's, it's interesting that these are very short-lived genres. And I wonder if most genres aren't roughly half a generation old in terms of like when they really came in and were really forceful, their first wave. I wonder, uh, and I, I haven't done any looking. I'm just wondering aloud. And I see both of you putting, you know, your lips away to think about it. Um, but uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's fascinating to me because we talk about satire only lasts half a decade before it becomes a goal, um, yeah. <laughs> which is depressing. Um, so I, I wonder if, yeah, if I, you know, unless there's a, a, unless there's a, an auteur who really pushes hard and keeps innovating, can we think of any genres that lasted besides you know, Marvel movies that lasted more than a decade? I don't know. I think, I think the Western Westerns. has some, oh, some okay. enduring yeah. quality. I mean, yeah. like, I mean, yeah. like there were West, they've been going since You're the right. 20s and, yeah. And it, and yeah. and and which you know, and again, it, it, it evolves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's but about a very narrow yeah. period in time, which is funny. Like, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. but okay. Yeah, yeah okay. Really so, about, like, so yeah, yeah. The slapstick comedies, and, and I mean, if you look outside, mm-hmm. mm, if you look outside the United States, sure. Um, right. Sing Sengoku Jidai movies. Um, uh have have lasted since the 
sixties in Japan. Okay. But that's but, basically their, their version. That's their version of the Western. Of Western. So yeah. 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 But again, you again, know. all of these genres like end up showing up in different ways because again, right. you have neo noir yeah. and and it and it, yeah. it it pops up in in different forms, and then you have the spaghetti western, which is a lot different than you know the, than most of the John Wayne era. So Very traditional, like, yeah. yeah. So you know, huh. yeah, it's the beast that wouldn't die, right? Well, and just like <laughs> you know, we found that Steve Martin really liked making screwball comedies in the nineties. Right. That was his thing. That and through the two thousands, yeah, he and Queen Latifah made like three or four of them. So, yeah. and you know, and to yeah. this day, there are really good variations on the screwball comedy. Sure. Like, um, like you know, I mean, two to two weeks notice. There was that. There was that uh, one with uh, Sandra Bullock and uh, and uh, uh, Ryan Reynolds uh, and uh, Daniel Radcliffe. And yeah, oh, okay. I mean, like like yeah. Yeah, stuff okay. like that comes up all the time. Sure, and yeah. I assume yeah. there's noir type shit right. that comes up too. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean. This got started. This this particular podcast came around as a result of Ed trying to convince me that Blade Runner is a movie worth a damn. So yeah, <laughs> which because it fucking is. <laughs> you know, I I will tell you, I I I I went back and said I hadn't seen Blade Runner for a long time, but then I saw Blade Runner. 2049 in the theater. I was captivated with that, and then I had to go back and and see that. Huh. And maybe it's just because of how I was exposed to it, but I, I was just, I was thoroughly impressed in, especially in a visual sense mm-hmm. about, you know, and you can definitely see the noir resonances in, uh, in, in both films, but I, I, I love 2049. And, and I think that's, I think that's worthwhile too. Yeah. If you haven't seen it. I've not, but I historically have fallen asleep trying to, I've tried five times to watch Blade Runner <laughs> and I've fallen asleep within 20 minutes each time now some of that might be i was a young we, we guy. have to we, yeah you got to come over we, we gotta we gotta at some point at yeah. some point i gotta come over and when you start falling asleep i just gotta Bam. hit you with yeah. a with a fireplace i've fallen asleep to some of my favorite right films sure, sure. I, but, I, I, but i'm, I'm, I'm a fan of andre tarkovsky yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. I, I i i like long boring takes like Andre Tarkovsky, like you know, just slow. Oh, you must moving, have loved Barry Lyndon, movies. Then. I love those. Which one? Barry Lyndon. I did like Barry Lyndon. Oh my god! Actually, yeah, yeah. it's. He, I know. I know. Me I really I'm a freak. Kubrick. Um, <laughs> I have very smart friends who like Barry Lyndon a lot, so I know the problem yeah. is me. But good lord. No, no. It, I mean, it is no. You, I, that's not entirely true. It's it is it, it, it's it's a boring, slow film, and mm-hmm. it's sometimes and you know, no, not everybody can pro- process that, and I can't process it all the time. But I just, but there's something about the level of art in which you're willing to just be incredibly patient and incredibly deliberate, which is just like it's very calming to me. It, it's almost not okay. like about okay. like what you would typically consider to be the art of the film. It's just like. You're going through uh, an art gallery or something like that. Okay. It's just it, it, it's it, it's a background setting and it's like white noise and I just I love it for that reason. It's it's very meditative. That yes, is kind of what yes. that sounds like to me. Okay, precisely. Cool. Precisely. All right. Okay. Well, uh, what would um, let's see how are we going to do this? Uh, Beowulf, why don't you hit us first uh, with what yeah. you would recommend people to read? You got any reading recommendations or see since film I, is literature. Yeah, uh, I I got to recommend a couple of films. Uh, yeah, as sure. I've mentioned before, 
out of the past, I think is a sublime example of the genre. I would also uh, recommend, although it is a little less typical, um, also starring uh, Robert Mitchum, Crossfire, which is kind of a combination between a film noir and a social message film. And um, I would I would say two act of violence with with Van Heflin, Robert Ryan, uh, Janet Lee, uh, uh, Mary Astor, a really good cast, uh, one that especially illuminates the the sort of psychic echoes of World War II that we're talking about particularly well, act of violence. Okay. So those would be my three recommendations. I love it. Ed, how about you? What would you what would you like to recommend? Um well on a on a complete tangent from what we've talked about today. Sure. Um in in a continuing effort to uh prepare everybody for when I start talking about cyberpunk as a genre. Okay. Um I very strongly recommend Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. Uh, written in 1992, uh, and it is, um, I think, a a wonderful example of the evolution of the genre away from, uh, away from Gibson, uh, and away from Walter John Williams into a new direction, uh, with a slightly less self serious kind of tone. Um, famously the, the main character of the novel is named hero protagonist. (laughs) Um, that, that feels hero H I go on, go ahead. I was going to say that feels very, um, uh, pseudolus, uh, yes, literally means little tricky one. Yeah. Um, hero spelled, spelled H I R O. Uh, protagonist uh he he is uh the the son of a uh or son or grandson of an uh african-american gi uh who uh, married a japanese woman uh after the war and uh so anyway but it's 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 an amazing an amazing book and a great example of the genre so i'm gonna highly highly recommend if you haven't read it, go out and read it. If you have read it, go out and reread it. <laughs> um, and so that's that's my recommendation. Love it. Well, since you asked, Ed, I'm going to recommend. Uh... <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, sorry, I, <laughs> I uh, faded there. I apologize. My bad. Sorry. Right. What, 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 what what do you got? I'm going to assume it was audio. Um, I'm going to recommend actually Preston Sturgis by Preston Sturgis. Uh, gosh, it's been a long time since I've read that. Uh, I read it um, when I was studying a screwball comedy, uh, but uh, he he writes his own. It's adapted and edited by Sandy Sturgis, who I can't remember if that's his wife or his daughter. It kind of doesn't matter. Um, but uh, he essentially is kind of just, it's his memoir about his times as a Hollywood director, a very successful Hollywood director, uh, in specifically uh, screwball comedy, but he also dipped into other things because nobody just did one thing back then. Um, I also just finished watching Five Came Back. Um, it's uh, uh, on the streaming services. I believe it's on Netflix. Um, it is a documentary where they interviewed a bunch of modern directors, and I'm talking like the stars of modern directing. Spielberg's in there. Um, and it's talking about uh, Frank Capra's boys and all the guys that went over uh, during the war. It was a really good, 
four or five episode documentary. It was a lot of a lot of good stuff in there. So yeah. So that's that's what I'm gonna All recommend. Right. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so let's go around the horn. We'll go Ed, then me, then we'll finish with Beowulf. Um, Ed, where uh do you want to be found this week or no? I do not. I remain okay. a shadow in the warp. Um like but we collectively, of course, can be found at uh, wubba 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 dot geekhistorytime.com uh online uh we can be found on on twitter as long as that doesn't evaporate in a ball of purple flame um at geek history time there on on the twitter machine and then um you have obviously found us if you're listening to this uh our our podcast is uh, available on uh, stitcher and the apple podcast app please wherever you've found us take a moment to subscribe uh, take another moment after that to give us the five-star review that you know we deserve. Um, if only uh, because we're fortunate enough to have smart people uh, like Beowulf come join us. Um, but that's that's reason enough right there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, how about you, Damien? Well, uh, let's see. On social media, I'm pretty much static. So I'll just tell you, if you're in the Sacramento area and you want to come and see a pun tournament... Uh, you just missed the April 7th one where we had an actual professional wrestler competing on our show, uh, which was awesome. Nice. Um, th- by the time this releases, that will have happened and it will have been awesome. Uh, um, but also our May 5th uh, show is coming up uh, at Luna's. Um, I don't think we're doing anything for the holiday because it's it's not really a holiday that people celebrate outside of Pueblo or all of the United States gets drunk. Um, but May 5th uh, is is going to be a show at Luna's um, uh, 8 o'clock. Bring your Vax card. Bring $20, 10 for the ticket, another 10 for merch and nachos. And if for some reason this pops up after that, then go to the June 2nd show, uh, which should be a lot of fun. It'll be kind of the first one of the summer. Uh, so same place, same time. Um, so yeah, that's capital punishment, capital with an O. So, uh, Beowulf. Nice. If, thank you. Where do you want to be found? If you want to be found at all, plug your stuff. Ah, well, you, you can find me, um, on Twitter at Beowulf Rockland. That's B E O W U L F R O C H L E N. Or, uh, if you, uh, want to associate yourself in one way or another with my angry lefty, uh, podcast uh, and radio program Facepalm America that is at Facepalm USA <laughs> and if Twitter does go kablooey uh, you can go to facepalmamerica.com where you can connect, uh, listen to all past episodes and uh, have a great time doing it I like it, cool well, uh, thank you Beowulf Rockland for joining us uh, for thank this thank you so episode. much for having me on and it was fun. I like oh. I, I like blathering about non-political yeah. stuff too. Nice. Well, it's, we sometimes yeah. we blather uh, whether or not we're political. Yeah. I <laughs> blather now. You yeah. ask incisive yeah. questions, I just go off. <laughs> uh, well, for I love history, blood time, and rhetoric school. What's that? <laughs> I said we're the love blood and rhetoric school. <laughs> it, it's a it's a <laughs> it's a Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Uh, reference don't don't gotcha. I'll, I'll explain off air don't worry about okay. it don't, you know don't, hamlet's don't fake, out. right no. you know hamlet's yeah. fake <laughs> it's a wrestling fan i feel it my duty to fake tell news. You that hamlet's fake. Uh, so, yeah, is this fake yeah 
you knew that Hamlet was going to win yeah. at the end. You knew it, it's it's pre it's it's all fake. Uh, well, for a Geek History of Time, <laughs> I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling 20s. <laughs>